This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Tuesday, October 10th. On the pod today, Israel is ramping up for the next phase of war. It's mobilizing over 300,000 reservists four days after Hamas militants launched a devastating attack. We have a former Israeli justice minister standing by. As the death toll rises, the international community responds with pledges of support, appeals for peace, and calls for more humanitarian aid. We have a panel of international experts here to break this all down. A lot has happened over the past 24 hours, both here at home and abroad. This afternoon, U.S. President Joe Biden pledges staunch support for Israel. Meanwhile, last night, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau condemned protests here in Canada in support of Hamas. Israel Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is taking steps to advance an emergency unity government, all while Israel pounds Gaza with airstrikes, with the death toll in Gaza reportedly reaching 900. We'll discuss all of this throughout the show, but first, an update from the ground. The CBC's Paul Hunter is in Jerusalem. So, Paul, what can you tell us about the latest in this war? Uh, plenty, David. Um, I'll begin in Lebanon. Uh, and it was from Lebanon today that uh, anti-tank missile and uh, other uh, mortars were fired into Israel from Syria today, an exchange with Israeli soldiers uh, of artillery fire. Uh, both low-level stuff, uh, but stoking fears once again that this may uh, expand uh, into that part of this country. Uh, but further south, in and around Gaza, relentless uh, uh, airstrikes from Israel and relentless rocketry from Hamas uh, uh, forces into Israel. Wave after wave after wave uh, in the Gaza Strip, striking neighborhood after neighborhood after neighborhood. Uh, Israel, of course, targeting Hamas sites and, and uh, weapons uh, storage areas, but at the same time uh, flattening uh, 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 as I say, na- turning neighborhoods into these mountains of rubble from which uh, Palestinians are uh, pulling bodies. On the Israeli side uh, today, some gruesome, uh, sobering, horrifying images and tales from a kibbutz uh, on the, uh, just on the east side of the Gaza Strip. You know, we started talking about this when, when the f- images first came out from uh, that rave north of Gaza. Well, this is the first time down into this region uh, east of Gaza. What people saw uh, were bodies and blood. Um, people killed in their beds. Uh, people burned alive. Um, Forty babies killed. Uh, some of them decapitated. Other people had limbs uh, cut off. Uh, People who who witnessed this stuff firsthand today, David, seemed um, stunned by what they saw. Um, It's... it's, It was horrifying, and uh, and it it may well be uh, only the beginning. All, all of this, obviously, uh, it's horrifying to hear about it. If, if you're in Israel and you're Benjamin Netanyahu and this has happened to your civilians, you can. this explains the rhetoric we've heard from the prime minister. The Israeli military, it's bombarding Gaza. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu says this is just the beginning. 
What are you hearing about what might come next? Well, he's saying what might come next will reverberate for generations. Um, uh, he has a decision to make, uh, and that is whether to um, begin a ground assault. He's meeting tonight in Tel Aviv with his security cabinet. Uh, no doubt uh, that being one of the many things they have to talk about, because it's a very complicated decision to make. Um, it's one thing to uh, commit to airstrikes. It's another to send soldiers in, uh, in tanks and other vehicles. I've been to the Gaza Strip many times, and I was in Gaza the last time there was a ground assault in 2014. Um, it lasted a month and a half. 2,000 Palestinians were killed. It's, it's, it's a very complicated place to stage an assault. It, it is almost entirely concrete. Uh, it is a warren of tiny, narrow streets and those tunnels uh, that, that, that the Israelis will not know where they are. Um, then there are the hostages uh, spread throughout the Gaza Strip. Uh, 100 of them, 150, no one knows exactly how many. But they would be absolutely at risk the moment Israeli forces were to cross the border. I mean, they, they already are with the threat to execute them if the airstrikes uh, continue without warning. And it sure feels imminent. You know, 360,000 reservists called up. The tanks that have been massing that we've seen. Israelis around the border have been told to stock up on food so that they can survive for a few days in shelters. All the signals are that a ground assault is the next step. The question is when. Paul, uh, thank you uh, for, for, for diligent reporting on a pretty grim subject. That's the CBC's Paul Hunter in Jerusalem. Some new information to tell you about regarding Canada's response to the Hamas-Israel conflict. Sources have told Radio Canada and CBC News there are discussions underway to prepare an evacuation plan for Canadians in Israel by air, sea and land. There are at least 2,500 Canadians registered in the region. Meanwhile, political leaders in this country are condemning the Hamas attack on Israel as well as any demonstrations on Canadian soil that support Hamas. Hamas terrorists aren't a resistance. They're not freedom fighters. They are terrorists. And no one in Canada should be supporting them, much less celebrating them. Hamas does not speak for the Palestinian people. It does not speak for Muslims. And it surely does not speak for Canadians. And that is why I unreservedly condemn any and all who took part in the disgusting celebrations that we have seen on our streets the last several days. There's no way to justify what happened since uh, Saturday morning. Uh, the Hamas terrorism cannot uh, uh, be justified. So I didn't like to see uh, those uh, protests. I think uh, we all have to denounce uh, what happened. Canada and the rest of the world are waiting to see what Israel's military does next. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has promised a response that will, quote, change the Middle East. Yossi Balin previously served as Israel's Minister of Justice. He also played a key role in initiating the Oslo process in the 1990s and the Jiva initiative in 2003. Thank you for joining us today, sir. Thank you for having me. Uh, you've heard, I'm sure, what Prime Minister Netanyahu has said, promising to punish Gaza and eliminate Hamas. What do you think the Israeli response is going to look like in its next phase, from your perspective? 
Well, I, I hope that it will be uh, possible to incapac- incapacitate uh, Hamas, incapacitate Hamas, sorry. Uh, it means uh, not, not to uh, kill all of them. This is not uh, the way one, one uh, refers to it. But I do believe that uh, they are not a partner to anything. They, are, they were never ready to talk to us. They were never to, ready to talk even to me, for example. Uh, it is much m- more like ISIS than to a- any other thing. And what they did in the last uh, days is really horrible. Uh, we are all asking ourselves, what was the precedent? I mean, Yom Kippur War, the, the Holocaust even, or something like that, and we don't know. Uh, because it never happened to us. And I think that uh, Israel cannot ignore such a thing and has to do something that people will know that uh, we are not uh, uh, weak and that we are not accepting such a behavior. Uh, the, the main important thing for us is to think about the morning after when they are, uh, they, they are incapacitated, whether right. we can really have an alternative rather than uh, re- uh, replacing them as uh, the, the occupier, which will be a disaster for us. Okay, I, I want to just start with the idea, as you've referenced it, as incapacitating Hamas. Given what we know about the way Gaza is populated and the way Hamas is in- intertwined with the civilian population in terms of where it's set up, can that be done without severe civilian casualties? And, and do you think Prime Minister Netanyahu is concerned about that at this point? I cannot speak on his behalf. I hope that it is possible. I hope that uh, the minimum uh, number of casualties uh, will will have to pay a price. It is a war between civilians. I mean, civilians on both sides are regretfully paying the, the price, and this is crazy. You say you have to think about the day after, once Hamas is removed, and, and who would take control, effective control of Gaza. Uh, you say it cannot be Israel, it, it needs to be someone else or some other organization. Uh, I mean, what could that possibly look like when this is over? Well, the obvious one is the PLO and the Palestinian Authority. That uh, it was there, uh, it is a part of the future Palestinian state, and uh, there is no real reason why the, the Palestinian Authority will not take it uh, upon itself unless there is a, a feeling there that they cannot take it for us. And then we might have a kind of an interim uh, uh, period in which the Arab League or another organization or a, a group of countries are taking upon themselves uh, this uh, quite complex uh, role until the, the Palestinian organization is taking it upon, him, uh, upon itself. But maybe they will be ready to take it immediately. Right. We should be there, that is for sure. Okay, we're, we're probably getting ahead of ourselves in the conversation in terms of what will come after this. But because right now we know uh, the Israeli defense forces are, are shelling and launching airstrikes into the heart of Gaza, there seems a, a growing probability of a, of a ground invasion. Is there any off-ramp here? Do you see any way to prevent what is coming, any chance at a, a solution uh, before this escalates further? No, I, I, regretfully, I, I mean, I would love to see a solution. I would love to see any kind of a, 
long ceasefire, you know, armistice with, with uh, Hamas. But uh, Israel tried uh, this idea for many, many times, and uh, there was no partner for that. We, we really cannot find a solution with them. The only thing that they want is that we will evaporate, and we are not going to evaporate. And if this is the case, uh, then it, it should be apparently something which I hate, and I believe that many other Israelis hate, but we have to, to act, and maybe even on the ground, which means casualties on both sides. If the response matches the rhetoric we heard from the Prime Minister, how do you think other players in the region are going to respond, such as Iran, Saudi Arabia, or Lebanon? I don't know. I, I really don't know. It is, it is not an information that I have. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody can, uh, can uh, speculate about it. Uh, I hope that it will not become a regional uh, war as it did not become in the previous times when there were uh, activities on the ground. I, I wonder, though, sir, if there are, obviously you would like to see a de-escalation here, uh, an end to this. Who, who are some of the, the key players who could maybe help broker some sort of a compromise? Or is there a country I, I that would, can be a trusted intermediary? I, I would like to see de-escalation, but I cannot say that I would like to skip the, 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 the chapter of confrontation. And for that, I mean, I find myself for the first time in a situation whereby I am not the usual guy who says all the time, don't fight, have peace, compromise. Eventually, it is win-win. It will never be a uh, just a, a zero-sum game. Mm. I cannot say, don't do that. I hope that it won't take a long that it won't uh, take a long while. I hope that the, the de-escalation will happen soon after, after a few days. But I cannot say don't do that. Is that a position you take, sir, because of the the, the specifics of what have happened in the last several days? That uh, you, you've worked for a long time for peace with the Palestinians, but you, you just you want to see an end to Hamas. Am I understanding you correctly? Yes. I, one of the reasons for, for my uh, I, uh, initiative to go for the Oslo Agreement was the rise of Hamas mm. in the early 90s, vis-à-vis the, the PLO. And, and I said, I mean, we may like the PLO or not, but uh, they are a national organization which is ready to negotiate with Israel, while Hamas is not there at all. So before Hamas is becoming a dominant party, and it was already there, quite popular, let us go for something else. Let us talk to the PLO. Let us strengthen the PLO and negotiate with them. And eventually I was glad that we succeeded to have an agreement in 93. The problem happened later on because we gave the extremists on both sides the opportunity to thwart our efforts. You have been a proponent of a two-state solution. Um, Canada endorses that position. What has this most recent episode done to the prospect of a two-state solution? I believe that it did not make it uh, weaker. I think that uh, more and more people will understand in Israel that Hamas is not an option. Mm. I think that uh, for the right in Israel, and even for Netanyahu himself, 
Hamas was a kind of an option, mainly because they didn't ask for a Palestinian state and for the partition of the land. But eventually, you cannot compare the PLO with all its uh, shortage, shortcomings uh, to the Hamas. And maybe, maybe, even there, in the Israeli right, they will understand the importance of the PLO in our game. So I, I think that negotiations, and especially if this government will not continue, uh, I, I believe that it will be very difficult for Netanyahu to continue being a prime minister after uh, such a crazy event and the, 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 the surprise of the Israeli uh, government. So if there is a new government in Israel and this new government supports the two-state solution, as our previous prime minister, Yair Lapid, just a few months ago said in the UN Assembly General, a general assembly. So then, then I, I think that the prospects for two states may grow, and in my view, it should be a confederation of two sovereign states, Israel and Palestine, in which the Israelis who live in the West Bank, the settlers, will be allowed to stay there, while the same number of Palestinians would be allowed to come to Israel as uh, Palestinian citizens and Israeli permanent uh, uh, residents. I think that this will open the way for negotiations because the issue of the settlements and the settlers is becoming the biggest obstacle before the two states. Former Israeli Justice Minister Yossi Balin in Tel Aviv, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate your perspective. Thank you for having me. A second Canadian has been confirmed among those killed when Hamas gunmen stormed a number of Israeli sites on Saturday. This is 22-year-old Ben Mizrahi from Vancouver. The MP for his riding, Talib Nur Mohammed, says the family has given him permission to announce Mizrahi's death. Mizrahi was shot and killed while attending a music festival near the Gaza-Israeli border. British Columbia Premier David Eby spoke a short time ago. Ben Mizrahi uh, was at a dance party uh, with friends, having a good time, uh, when he was killed uh, during the attacks that took, took place uh, over the last couple of days. Uh, I can't imagine what it must be like for Mr. Mizraki's friends and family right now grappling with this terrible news uh, that uh, what surely uh, was meant to be such a wonderful celebration uh, turned into uh, such a tragedy for them and, uh, and to lose someone that they love and care about so much. It's, uh, it's disturbing to all of us what happened to, in Israel, these terrible attacks on civilians, uh, the uh, massacre of innocent people, the taking of hostages. And uh, I just want to send out a message to Mr. Mizraki's family and friends that we stand with them and we stand with Israel in the face of these awful attacks. And uh, it is uh, profoundly disturbing to all of us and we're grieving uh, with them today. The world is bracing for the next phase of Israel's military response to attacks by Hamas. The Defense Force continues to conduct airstrikes on targets in Gaza. Hundreds of Palestinians have reportedly been killed. And Israel appears to be preparing for a ground assault. Meanwhile, President Joe Biden made it clear that the United States stand with, stands with Israel, and he issued a warning to other countries and parties in the region. The United States has also enhanced our military force posture in the region to strengthen our deterrence to any country 
any organization, anyone thinking of taking advantage of this situation, I have one word. Don't. Don't. We've invited a special panel to discuss the state of this conflict and what it means more broadly for the region. Arif Lalani previously served as Canada's ambassador to Jordan, Iraq, Afghanistan, and the United Arab Emirates. Roland Paris previously served as a foreign policy advisor to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. John Allen previously served as Canada's ambassador to Israel. Gentlemen, thank you so much uh, for joining me. Uh, Arif, I'd like to start with you if I could. Let's take stock of this moment. Prime Minister Netanyahu is promising to punish Gaza and eliminate Hamas. We've already seen airstrikes, and it appears as if the IDF is preparing for a ground offensive. What could the next few days look like? Well, I think I've said it already once this month on a different crisis, but unfortunately, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, It's very clear that uh, there is going to be more in terms of Israel defending itself in Gaza I think I'm very worried about this escalating in the West Bank, um, escalating with other forces like Hezbollah. I think there's a real danger here over the next few days uh, of trying to get control of the situation uh, just around Israel. Roland, your thoughts on what we're likely to see unfold over the coming days? Well, the indications are that Israel is preparing for a ground assault, and it's entirely within its rights to... Uh, dismantle Hamas and destroy its capacity to launch such horrific assaults again. The challenge is going to be, though, if they do launch a ground assault, it's be a very difficult operation, a very complicated one, a very destructive one. And as Arif says, uh, tensions around the region uh, will be increasing, and there is the potential for there to be flashpoints elsewhere. Uh, John, we, we spoke with uh, Yossi Balin earlier in the show, who, who's played a role in previous peace negotiations going all the way back to Oslo. He is a strident proponent of a two-state solution. He wants peace, but he says Israel can't skip this next chapter, meaning the response to the attack by Hamas. What does that tell us about the mood inside Israel right now? Well, the scale of the massacre and the social media that has amplified it Uh, has really meant that um, Israelis um, are shocked. They are, they're shocked at the fact that their government and their military did not defend them and the families on the kibbutzim near the border. They're shocked that um, the military they thought that was virtually invincible and had massive intelligence and had control of uh, their territory, proved uh, not to, to have it. So um, the, the, the government, uh, Bibi Netanyahu, uh, who is seen as a failure in many ways, both politically for the judicial reforms and now military, is, is committed to trying to do what he can to, uh, to, to turn that around. Uh, mm. The problem is that uh, there's 150 hostages in Gaza right now. It's not just a question, as Roland mentioned, of uh, of trying to enter a small territory with 2.3 million people, but there are hostages, some Americans, some Canadians, uh, and and many many Israelis. Um, so how is the how is the military going to deal with that problem while right. trying to get at Hamas leaders? And I'll just say one more thing. This is the sixth time 
that we've been through this. And I would have hoped that we would have learned some lessons by now. That it's time to, to look at the root causes of this problem and stop mowing the lawn and thinking that it's somehow going to go away because it's not going to go away. Well, uh, Arif, um, there, there wasn't a lot of conversation about root causes today uh, from the U.S. president because in no uncertain terms, Biden was backing Israel here. He's moving U.S. military assets into the region to ask, uh, act as a, a military deterrence from, from outside players in other countries. What does the posture of the U.S. president and this deployment tell you about the risk that this conflict could spiral out, out, out of control in the region? Well, there's no doubt in anybody's mind that we're going to see more violence in the coming days and weeks. Uh, I, I think there's going to be more operations in Gaza, but as John rightly points out, uh, history has shown us uh, that does not solve Israel's security problem. Uh, I think the other awakening here is, is that some of the best physical security protection that they could mount um, was literally undermined by what seems to be very low-tech but very sophisticated, coordinated attacks. So in the medium term, there is going to have to be some revival of a Palestinian peace track uh, that accompanies uh, the Arab-Israeli peace track that has been moving at quite a pace uh, in, the, in the last couple of years. Roland, given the reaction uh, inside Israel, do you think there's an appetite for, for a peace track uh, or, or, a, or more of an appetite for revenge? And, and what are your thoughts on how this could broaden out from beyond what we're already seeing? Well, I think that, uh, you know, you've already heard described that the uh, the mood in Israel, and it's, uh, it's not a conciliatory mood at this time. It's one of shock. Mm. And uh, the population will demand of the government that Hamas not be capable of conducting such an attack again. The longer-term questions about what are the bases for peace in Israel, this is um, this will, I think, come back eventually uh, into the Israeli discussion. And uh, the foundations of the approach that have that's been pursued in the last few years, which is basically to build giant walls and uh, and then uh, negotiate uh, a normalization agreements with surrounding Arab countries has been shown not to be the, the solution. So there will have to be a reflection on those issues. Coming back to your question about you, the uh, Biden statement, I think it's very good that the United States has is issued this warning, not just to deter uh, individual parties or Iran or other countries for that matter, but also to reassure the Israelis uh, and to reduce the you know, perhaps the uh, impulse on the part of the Israelis to consider preemptive actions in other quarters. John, uh, you, you mentioned the prospect, of the, the idea that they need to, to get to a, a peace track and, and deal with root causes. I was struck, though, uh, talking to Paul Hunter earlier in the show um, about the details that came out today about 40 babies being murdered, one of them beheaded. And, and when I know these conflicts have happened before, but the specifics of this, it seems different and, and feels different. Uh, I, I mean, do you think that changes in any way, the willingness uh, of Israelis to, to, to even consider uh, a peace process. Look, look in, in the short term, um, this pain is not just going to disappear. Yeah. And um, we shouldn't expect it to. And I, I'm not suggesting that um, 
Hamas doesn't have to be treated uh, as a terrorist organization. Um, but, you know, we, we've got to recognize what's been going on in, in this process for years. Bibi Netanyahu's government has been allowing Qatar to fund Hamas. Why? Because he wanted to divide and conquer Hamas from the PA. He never wanted a two-state solution. The ministers in his current government want to annex the West Bank. Hamas was actually being allowed to function and build their rockets because it, it allowed Bibi to say there's no partner for peace. So all what I'm saying is, yes, you're right. There's going to have to be some revenge. There's going to have to be um, more attacks and, and, and more people will suffer. But at some point, um, uh, I, I think uh, people will wake up and realize that this isn't the answer mm. to safety and peace for Israelis or for Palestinians. And, and what you're going to need is moderate leadership that excludes extremes um, from the equation and takes some chances on peace. And that's not going to happen tomorrow. But uh, I, I do think Israelis and Palestinians uh, want peace. And I think um, it, at some point in time, uh, they'll realize that's the way out of this quagmire. Uh, Arif, um, there have been, has been outreach by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, to other players in the region. He spoke to the president of the UAE, the King of Jordan. Why those two countries? Why do you think he's reaching out to them? And how do you think they could affect what happens next? Well, I think the Arab countries clearly have a key role to play. Uh, I think Jordan, given its historic role with the Palestinians, uh, will carry some weight and they need to be consulted. And, and I think the king will be conducting diplomacy behind the scenes. Uh, the UAE, look, they're a very influential player uh, right now in the region. And I think this is the difference uh, from what we may have seen five, eight, ten years ago, is that you do have an Israeli-Arab normalization track. Mm -hmm. And you have certain countries, uh, the UAE and Saudi Arabia, uh, who are much more uh, involved in the global economy and who have much more invested in peace and stability in the region than before. So uh, I think they're looking for the same things that others are in terms of uh, wanting to, to contain this and wanting to, to move forward. And none of those countries... Um, are any friends of Hamas. They see them as an extremist terrorist organization. Um, they, they don't side with them. But I think there will be a realization that they need to start laying the groundwork um, for reviving some process for the Palestinians. Is that process, Roland, at risk in any way because of this? I mean, I've seen some speculation and suggestion that because the Saudis and the Israelis were moving closer maybe to normalizing things, that may have been one of the motivations behind this attack to stop that process uh, in its tracks. How, how do you think all of this could be affected by what we've seen in the last couple of days? Who knows what the motivation was behind this attack? It might have been an expression of frustration. It could have been a lashing out by a death cult. It could have been more calculated than that. 
But there's no question that uh, the result of this is a setback for efforts uh, led by the United States to normalize the relationship between Israel and Saudi Arabia, which was, by all appearances, making some very significant headway. And uh, which country gains from that, uh, from that process being upended or disrupted? It's Iran. Uh, because one of the things that uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia have in common is their mutual uh, distrust of Iran. So, yes, I think that this changes regional diplomacy. Arif, I hope that he's right, Arif is right, that uh, that this track towards greater normalization uh, will continue for the short run, at least, and particularly if Israel goes ahead with the ground invasion of Gaza. I think that uh, it's going to be very difficult for Arab countries because their own populations will likely feel and express a sense of outrage over whatever images emerge from Gaza. Right. So, so, so John Allen, on that point, could the scale of the Israeli response affect this? I mean, we've already had uh, uh, the, the atrocities committed on one side. Israel's response, could, could that uh, affect this entire normalization process? Oh, I, I think certainly in the short to medium term, or let's say the short term, uh, it's going to affect it. Uh, as Roland said, uh, leadership in the Gulf is one thing, but the street is is pro-Palestinian. Mm. And uh, when the destruction continues to be broadcast on Al Jazeera and other stations uh, that people watch, uh, it's going to be very difficult um, to uh, start talking about uh, a kind of normalization again. Um, it was never going to be easy. Uh, civilian nuclear uh, security pact for Saudi um, and, of course, uh, something for the Palestinians. Those were all part of the equation. And, and while the U.S. was keen to make it happen, and so was Saudi and so was Israel, um, uh, each part had uh, complications. And now we, we have, as my colleague said, the added complication, Hezbollah happy, Iran happy that mm. this is off the table, um, uh, Hamas happy because this would have benefited the PA, not them, uh, if if any benefits uh, had come to the Palestinians as a result. Um, so, uh, yes, in the short term, uh, I don't think we'll be seeing a lot of talk about those agreements. There is the whole question of what the Palestinians were going to get out of it. Was it, they certainly didn't, weren't going to get a state, um, which was the old Saudi deal, um, were they going to get an end to annexation? Were they going to get uh, an end to settlement expansion? Not clear, but um, uh, we were all kind of interested in seeing what that part of the equation was. Right. Uh, Arif, I wanted just as a quick final point, and maybe it's unfair to ask you to, to talk about this quickly, but the, the, the position of Prime Minister Netanyahu in all of this. A massive intelligence failure on his watch leading to this. Reports uh, from Egyptian officials saying that Israel was warned that something big was coming from Hamas, something that the Prime Minister said in his speech yesterday was bad information or misinformation. Where is his political leadership right now uh, in Israel? Well, look, I'm not going to comment on, on the domestic politics. John's probably better, but I will say this. Look, there was clearly a massive underestimation of the type of frustration that was there and the strategy that you could block off Gaza and simply increase economic assistance didn't address the problem. I mean, they've addressed this as a problem about Al-Aqsa Mosque and religion, 
precisely because people in the Gulf and elsewhere can't ignore that. And second, the BB government clearly overestimated uh, the ability of security and defense that the wall and, and intelligence could provide. I mean, they were completely uh, off the mark on how sophisticated Hamas has become. John, as a former ambassador there, uh, what are your thoughts on, on Prime Minister Netanyahu's political security right now? Well, as you know, uh, Bibi was all Bibi and his coalition was already way down in the polls. Um, if there had been an election before this, uh, his coalition would not have won. Both Yair Lapid and Benny Gantz have said to him, "We will form a national unity government with you." if you get rid of your two radical right, right. ministers, Ben Gavir and Smotrich. Um, the question is, is Bibi Netanyahu prepared finally to put the country's interests in front of his own? Um, he's gone after the inquiries that um, will look into this war anyway, but uh, what he should be doing is agreeing to a national unity government uh, that together... Uh, can move the country forward and out of the pain and the agony that they're feeling right now. Roland, uh, we're, we're just out of time, but a quick final thought from you. Well, I, I agree with the assessments that we've heard. I think that Netanyahu uh, is, this happened on his watch. There'll, there is a moment now of an attempted unification within Israel, and there's certainly uh, this shock uh, has brought Israelis together, but there will be a, a reckoning uh, for how this could have happened, and uh, we'll see how that plays out. But I would add one last point, which is that you know, this uh, possible ground invasion of Gaza is going to be extremely difficult for Israel, which has kind of been left with no choices. Uh, the government cannot just mow the lawn like it's done before. It has to do something big uh, that the Israeli people expect. Uh, Hamas needs to be dismantled. But in spite of all the difficulties we've talked about, there's one more, which is if Israel can thread the needle and pull off an operation that does dismantle Hamas and that somehow saves the hostages and that avoids causing excessive civilian casualties, there'll still be the question of who will yeah. govern yeah. in Gaza. Yeah, there's, there's no easy answer uh, to that one, at least not, not right now. Uh, gentlemen, I, I really appreciate the time and, and the insight. Thank you so much. Arif Lalani, Roland Paris, and John Ellen, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Some U.S. citizens living in Israel say their family members are missing after Saturday's attacks by Hamas militants. The relatives spoke in a news conference from Tel Aviv today. I knew immediately, wherever he was, it was a terrible situation. I took it to mean, I love you and I'm sorry because whatever is going to happen is going to cause you tremendous pain and worry. He's an arm length away in Gaza, evidently, but couldn't be farther from me and our family right now. Our hope, which is a bit ridiculous at this stage to say that um, the optimistic scenario here is that she's held hostage in Gaza and not dead on the street of the kibbutz where we grew up. Meanwhile, at least five Canadians have reportedly been directly impacted by the Hamas attack. Two are believed to be dead. Three others are missing.
Shanna Orlik is the binational missing persons liaison for the Civil Crisis Center supporting Israeli families affected by the Hamas attack. Ms. Orlik is in Tel Aviv. Shanna Orlik, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. You're connected with many families impacted by the hostage taking here. Do you have a sense of how many people uh, are missing or have been captured by Hamas? Um, so we started organizing lists, organizing people and as of now, uh, the list that we have, the most updated one is about 400 uh, people, uh, not of missing people, persons, but really their families, their close ones. Uh, so we estimate at uh, about 380 uh, for right now from families, you know, reaching out and telling us their story and signing up in this new initiative that we launched. So from how many countries are, are we talking about here? We're hearing that five Canadians ha have been affected by this so far. What's your sense of how widespread this is? Uh, so from our numbers, we have about 60 um, dual nationals, uh, people that are both Israeli and have one or two other uh, citizenships uh, from the age of four uh, to, the eight of, to the age of 84. Um, this is the range, and we have people from 16 different countries um, that we have um, seen so far. What, what kind of stories are you hearing about some of these missing people? I, I know there, there's a, a tendency not to share identities for, for various reasons, because it could put them at risk, but, but what kind of stories are you hearing about the people who are missing? Um, heartbreaking. I, um, I've been like in the front line of that, you know, like listening to their story also, because the government is not really organized and doesn't really give answers or, or that isn't in touch with them. So we get, you know, to, to, to be this person that they turn to. And, you know, it's from young people that were just partying and, and just like got taken away. Uh, we know that there are wounded people that were taken uh, by Hamas and have no assistance, like very heavy uh, wounds, uh, war wounds. I, we, we also, the images, it's, it's a massacre. Um, and so we have people that tell their, the stories of their loved ones that, you know, uh, we have someone that is very young from uh, Russia and his parents are in Russia and he's alone. So the neighbor is basically in contact with us because he has no one. And we are trying to be their voices. We're trying to tell their stories. Uh, we have whole families on our form. We see five, six people with the same family name, the same contact person. Um, we know that villages have been completely, you know, erased. Uh, and this is going on. So, 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 this is happening. They get no support. And what we're trying to do is really, you know, as a, a very like civil society, that you know, like I'm a normal citizen. I saw that. I heard on the news that no one was talking to those families, and it's hundreds of families. They're uh, heartbroken and and don't know what is happening. And the resilience is amazing and the solidarity and the country is incredible. But at the end of the day, um, you know, we're all citizens, we're all volunteers, we're trying to do our best. And we're also trying to reach out uh, to diplomats, to uh, anyone who can help the Red Cross. Uh, we're in contact with a lot of people because I think also outside of Israel, people understand that, you know, civil society is leading the, the, the war effort. So we're at the, the, the front lines trying to be in touch with the families, with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs here in Israel, and also um, with the army to 
make sure that we update our list and we send them also this right. information. We, we've heard from U.S. President Joe Biden today uh, saying that he is, uh, because there are Americans who are part of the missing and, and the hostages in this situation, that he has ordered his uh, administration to share intelligence and to p- deploy experts to Israel to help with the hostage situation. What is your sense as to what the Israeli government is doing on the hostage front? Well, that's a, that's a very good question. I wish I had an answer, and that's what's very scary. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know what, you know, at the like political level, we don't know what the policy is. We don't know what the goals are. We just know right now there is a, a retaliation. There is a response of, like, a very, very big scale on Gaza. Uh, but we don't really know what they're doing. Uh, so we're very happy, I think, that the U.S. is announcing this, that President Biden is, is, is joining and he's going to help because it feels like this, you know, it's not, I, I'm going back to this, right? If you have thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of citizens just, you know, doing like those kind of initiatives and talking with diplomats abroad, then then there must be something wrong and, and we're trying to fix it. But it's, it's, it's just like a human disaster. And what I want to say is that I think this is the best thing that we could heard today from President Biden. We need your government, we need all governments, we need the free world to unite and speak up against Hamas and against this terrorist group that is that has attacked us but is still attacking us basically. And there is Hezbollah in the north that is attacking us and it's basically, you know, a situation where we feel that we have thousands of bodies. We have bodies that are held in Gaza people that are in tunnels, we don't know where they are, and it feels like it's urgent. Um, and what we saw in the in what happened in the south of Israel is is basically a pogrom, in, in, you know, done by ISIS. This is what we saw, and we need the world to, to help us. We need governments to, to come on board, and it needs to be big, and it needs to be now, and I hope there will be more than follow uh, President Biden in, in his declaration. There, there are reports that many of the hostages have been taken into Gaza itself. And, and we know that Hamas has been accused of using his own citizens uh, as human shields. Uh, it would undoubtedly do the same thing with the hostages that have been taken. Meanwhile, the Israeli Defense Forces are gearing up for what looks like a pretty severe um, response into Gaza. Um, what, are, what are the concerns amongst the families of the missing that a full-scale military operation could happen be- before their loved ones are, are returned or found? I think the fact that nobody is talking to them um, is just making things worse because they, they don't know what to hope, they don't know what to to believe. Um, and, and so they see that this massive operation is happening, this war, um, and, and they lost their homes and, you know, their grandmother is, is held hostage and, and it's it's insane so they're completely uh, lost i think um and they're just hoping that the government will take them and their loved ones into consideration that they will first of all sense do anything they, they they need to do using you know international aid uh to bring humanitarian aid to to our hostages to understand how many hostages what are the the, the ages, you know, like when we're talking about a four-year-old, and this is a story that broke our hearts, a four-year-old without his family in a tunnel, hold, like held by terrorists, I'm sorry, I'm. I, this is just, it, it, it's okay. we have French people, we have, you know, Americans, we have Canadians, we have, um, like, everyone, it's just everyone, and, 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 you know, like, ISIS started one place in the world, and then, you know, spread 
uh, and started doing terrorist attacks all around the world. I think this is the risk, and that's why we need the, the, the democracies, our allies, to, to, to stand up. And this is the moment for us. Those are thousands of lives. Uh, we still don't know the numbers, and it's going to get worse. And the, the, the videos and the, the, you know, the pictures are going to go. Um, we're going to discover the, the full range of the horror that those people have uh, been going through. And they're currently probably held in tunnels, um, being sick. You know, they, they also have bodies, corpse, corpses that they, it's just like, you know, it's, in, it's just inhuman. And, and we've been hearing so many stories. Um, and we need we need we need the world's help. Uh, this is not just about Israel. This is not about the Palestinian liberation movement. This is about destruction. Um, and you know, I'm a peace activist in my normal life when there is no war, and I'm um, for a two-state solution. And I, I truly believe in this. But this is different. This is a terrorist group that has been uh, you know in control since 2006 in Gaza, having no human rights, uh, giving keeping population in, in poverty and they're you know we if if I, I hear so many people that want to defend palestinians so if you want to protect palestinians we need uh to do this together and to get rid of hamas before it's too late and it it, it goes you know wider than just israel shanna orlick i, I want to thank you for, for speaking with me uh today the shanna orlick the binational missing persons liaison for the civil crisis center supporting israeli families affected by the hamas attack thank you for your time Thank you so much. Gaza's nearly 2.3 million inhabitants live in one of the world's most densely populated regions, where the flow of food, water, and fuel is controlled by Israel. After the attack by Hamas, Israel declared a siege on the Gaza Strip and cut off that supply of essential goods, a move many say will cause a humanitarian crisis in the already struggling region. The good news in the past is that we had the possibility to bring aid and, for instance, our volunteers, even today, they were distributing some of the stocks that were pre-positioned in Gaza for any possible emergency. But these stocks will finish together with fuel for electricity, together with food and water. So it really, it really I mean, there is a desperate call that in the next days will arrive from Gaza where needs will grow in an enormous scale. For more on this evolving humanitarian crisis, we're joined by Michael Link. He's the former UN Special Rapporteur for the Human Rights Situation in the Palestinian Territories and currently a Professor Emeritus with the Faculty of Law at Western University. Michael Link, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We've known for a while the situation in Gaza was bad. In 2017, the UN put out a report saying that by 2020, Gaza may be unlivable because of the dire humanitarian situation. Here we are three years later. Can you walk me through what the situation was like before Saturday? Sure. Um, Israel had imposed a, uh, a blockade on Gaza beginning in 2007. The blockade was an air, sea, and land blockade, essentially meaning that the two-plus million Palestinians uh, in Gaza couldn't leave or um, that Israel controlled who entered and left and what entered and left. Mm. Um, the world, this led to uh, an economic collapse. Uh, the World Bank uh, has said that the unemployment rate in Gaza fluctuates between 45 and 50%, which is the highest unemployment rate of any economic unit that it looks at. Uh, water is uh, almost undrinkable. 97% 
of the water in the uh, Gaza aquifer, the central aquifer underneath Gaza, is undrinkable because of pollution by seawater uh, sea or sewage. Um, Gaza suffers from, from uh, power shortages. Uh, it has one power plant which supplies perhaps um, six to eight hours a day on good days. Some power comes in from Israel, which meant in the last couple of years that uh, Gaza was getting around 12 to 13 hours of, of, um, of power a day. It's got a collapsing healthcare system with, uh, with poor medical equipment, with great shortages in, in drugs, of course, which means a great deal in a time of serious conflict right now where the hospitals are, are overflowing. Uh, so you can imagine that you already have, if you like, a life of misery. It's it's a situation that the former British Prime Minister David Cameron called in uh, the world's largest open-air prison. It, it is a population of about 2.3 million, half uh, or more are children. And now Benjamin Netanyahu is pledging a, a total siege, cutting off water, cutting off food, cutting off fuel. What will that do to the situation you've already outlined? Well, already the um, United Nations Humanitarian Office, based both in Gaza and in Jerusalem, have been issuing very detailed um, um, bulletins each day, uh, which lay out what the what the crisis is in in terms of food, uh, in particular. Um, the electricity supply has been cut off, which means people don't have a way of, of refrigerating their uh, their food. The water supply is being cut off, and all that's left is is a desalination plant, which supplies perhaps twenty to thirty percent of the water needs in uh, in Gaza. Food security is probably going to be the most severely impacted. Gaza imports a fair amount of its uh, of its food. Uh, grocery stores and corner stores are already running out. Uh, the ability to for um, for chicken farmers and livestock uh, sector to be able to continue to feed their livestock and uh, and poultry and then ship it to a, a market in the middle of a uh, uh, of a war is almost impossible. So you can see where there's going to be uh, drastic food shortages hitting the population within the next several days if Israel continues this this absolute blockade. And I should point out, and my my hat as a lawyer, that um, collective punishment is forbidden under the Fourth Geneva Convention, which governs the occupation, the laws of occupation. And I'd made this in one of my reports when I was the special rapporteur. And I should also point out that uh, the Fourth Geneva Convention's additional protocols forbid the use by, um, uh, by a sieging army of using starvation or deprivations of any sort of, uh, of the necessities of life for a civilian population. So um, one, I think, could, uh, could quite easily come to the conclusion that Israel's already crossed the line with respect to uh, international law and on how it's conducting its operations. We've heard a similar uh, opinion expressed by the United Nations on this once the, the siege was more or less announced. But with the issues that you've outlined, typically that's when the international community and aid groups mobilize and respond. But we have a declaration of war and we have a siege. Is there any way, given this circumstance, that aid groups can get relief into Gaza for people? I doubt it. I mean, the, the ability to get into Gaza is that control of, uh, of Israel. Um, it obviously is um, uh, is acting with the intention probably of a, of a very long war. Remember the last major war um, between Israel and uh, uh, on Gaza uh, was in 2014, and that lasted for 50 days. Um, and there was uh, a devastating siege with respect to civilian uh, access to, to diesel power, water, and food uh, at that time. 
I think in, some, in many ways this promises if the threats coming from the Israeli leadership uh, to be a much more severe, uh, much more intense um, war with probably much greater uh, devastation on the civilian population um, and with a uh, healthcare system that's going to be unable to treat um, the wounded and the seriously injured that are uh, that are coming in there. Remember, while Israel, to its credit, has a, a wide range of uh, bomb shelters, uh, there are very few of any bomb shelters uh, in Gaza. Already more than 10% of the population in Gaza is sheltering in um, largely in uh, UN schools throughout the uh, the coastal strip right. uh, that's over 230,000 as of uh, as of today and those numbers are expected to grow uh, if there's going to be a land invasion if there's going to be more intensive bombing so i think we're going to see humanitarian crisis of a uh, of an extraordinary level over the next little while well we, we've got about 90 seconds left uh, uh, mr link I, I just on that given the, the the supply issues you've outlined the challenges with the water supply a desalination plant that can only serve 20 to 30 percent of the population that screams to me that a humanitarian crisis will happen very quickly water shortage in particular will exacerbate this of course, and you know, in order to keep the desalination plant working, it needs fuel. The fuel has to be imported. Uh, so, if fuel is going to be stopped at the uh, at the Gaza border and not let in, uh, the the desalination plant uh, will stop working. the The sewage plants uh, will probably stop working very quickly as well. Um, uh, and with no power to be able to generate in the strip, it's going to be a uh, you know, almost a moonscape uh, with, with respect to the ability of uh, the authorities there to be able to, to function and to, and to serve the, uh, the civilian population who is already obviously uh, wondering when the next bombs are going to be falling. If you've heard of any of the interviews over the last day, often you'll, you'll hear these interviews being uh, interrupted uh, by shelling and by, by the delivery of bombs. So I, I fear that we're going to very quickly head into a, uh, an extraordinary humanitarian crisis. As bad as the ones that occurred in 2009 and 2014, I think we haven't seen the worst of this yet. Michael Link, former UN Special Rapporteur for the Human Rights Situation in the Palestinian Territories, now a professor emeritus at the University of uh, Western Ontario. Thank you so much uh, for your time. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much, uh, David. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.